Section 8 of Our National Parks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. Our National Parks by John Muir. Section 8. The Wild Gardens of the Yosemite Park. When California was wild, it was the floweriest part of the continent, and perhaps it is so still, notwithstanding the lowland flora has in great part vanished before the farmer's flocks and plows. So exuberant was the bloom of the main valley of the state, it would still have been extravagantly rich had ninety-nine out of every hundred of its crowded flowers been taken away far flowerier than the beautiful prairies of illinois and wisconsin or the savannas of the southern states in the early spring it was a smooth evenly planted sheet of purple and gold one mass of bloom more than four hundred miles long with scarce a green leaf in sight still more interesting is the rich and wonderfully varied flora of the mountains Going up the Sierra across the Yosemite Park to the summit peaks, 13,000 feet high, you'll find as much variety in the vegetation as in the scenery. Change succeeds change with bewildering rapidity, for in a few days you pass through as many climates and floras, ranged one above another, as you would in walking along the lowlands to the Arctic Ocean and to the variety due to climate there is added that caused by the topographical features of the different regions again the vegetation is profoundly varied by the peculiar distribution of the soil and moisture broad and deep moraines ancient and well weathered are spread over the lower regions rough and comparatively recent and unweathered moraines over the middle and upper regions alternating with bare ridges and domes and glacier-polished pavements the highest in the icy recesses of the peaks raw and shifting some of them being still in process of formation and of course scarcely planted as yet besides these main soil beds there are many other comparatively small reformation of both glacial and weather soils sifted sorted out and deposited by running water and the wind on gentle slopes and in all sorts of hollows potholes valleys lake basins etc some in dry and breezy situations others sheltered and kept moist by lakes streams and waftings of waterfall spray making comfortable homes for plants widely varied in general glaciers give soil to high and low places almost alike while water currents are dispensers of special blessings constantly tending to make the ridges poorer and the valleys richer glaciers mingle all kinds of material together mud particles and boulders fifty feet in diameter water whether in oozing currents or passionate torrents discriminates both in the size and shape of material it carries glacier mud is the finest meal ground for any use in the park and its transportation into lakes and as foundations for flowery garden meadows was the first work that the young rivers were called on to do 
Bogs occur only in shallow alpine basins where the climate is cool enough for sphagnum and where the surrounding topographical conditions are such that they are safe, even in the most copious rains and thaws, from the action of flood currents capable of carrying rough gravel and sand, but where the water supply is nevertheless constant. The mosses dying from year to year gradually give rise to those rich, spongy peat beds in which so many of our best alpine plants delight to dwell. The strong winds that occasionally sweep the high Sierra play a more important part in the distribution of special soil beds than is at first sight recognized, carrying forward considerable quantities of sand, gravel, flakes of mica, etc., and depositing them in fields and beds beautifully ruffled and embroidered and adapted to the wants of some of the hardiest and handsomest of the alpine shrubs and flowers. The more resisting of the smooth, solid, glacier-polished domes and ridges can hardly be said to have any soil at all, while others, beginning to give way to the weather, are thinly sprinkled with coarse angular gravel. Some of them are full of crystals, which, as the surface of the rock is decomposed, are set free, covering the summits and rolling down the sides in minute avalanches, giving rise to zones and beds of crystalline soil. In some instances, the various crystals occur only here and there, sprinkled in the gray gravel like daisies in a sod. But in others, half or more is made up of crystals, and the glow of the embedded or loosely strewn gems and their colored gleams and glintings at different times of the day when the sun is shining might well exhilarate the flowers that grow among them and console them for being so completely outshone. These radiant sheets and belts and dome-encircling rings of crystal are the most beautiful of all the Sierra soil beds, while the huge taluses ranged along the walls of the great canyons are the deepest and roughest. Instead of being slowly weathered and accumulated from the cliffs overhead like common taluses, they were all formed suddenly and simultaneously by an earthquake that occurred at least three centuries ago. Though thus hurled into existence at a single effort, they are the least changeable and destructible of all the soil formations in the range, excepting those which were launched directly into the channels of rivers. Scarcely one of their wedged and interlocked boulders has been moved since the day of their creation, and though mostly made up of huge angular blocks of granite, many of them from 10 to 50 feet cube, trees and shrubs make out to live and thrive on them and even delicate herbaceous plants, draperia, colomia, zauchneria, etc., soothing their rugged features with gardens and groves. In general views of the park, scarce a hint is given of its floral wealth. Only by patiently, lovingly sauntering about in it will you discover that it is all more or less flowery. The forests, as well as the open spaces, and the mountaintops and rugged slopes around the glaciers, as well as the sunny meadows. Even the majestic canyon cliffs, 
seemingly absolutely flawless for thousands of feet and necessarily doomed to eternal sterility are cheered with happy flowers on invisible niches and ledges wherever the slightest grip for a root can be found as if nature like an enthusiastic gardener could not resist the temptation to plant flowers everywhere on high dry rocky summits and plateaus most of the plants are so small they make but little show even when in bloom but in the opener parts of the main forests the meadows stream banks and the level floors of yosemite valleys the vegetation is exceedingly rich in flowers some of the lilies and larkspurs being from eight to ten feet high and on the upper meadows there are miles of blue gentians and daisies white and blue violets and great breadths of rosy purple heathworts covering rocky moraines with a marvellous abundance of bloom enlivened by hummingbirds butterflies and a host of other insects as beautiful as flowers in the lower and middle regions also many of the most extensive beds of bloom are in great part made by shrubs adenostoma manzanita cianthus camabacia cherry rose rubus spirea shad laurel azalea honeysuckle calycanthus ribes philadelphus and many others the sunny spaces about them bright and fragrant with mints lupins geraniums lilies daisies goldenrods castileus gilius penstemons etc adenostoma fasciculatum is a handsome hardy heath-like shrub belonging to the rose family flourishing on dry ground below the pine belt and often covering areas of twenty or thirty miles of rolling sun-beaten hills and dales with a dense dark green almost impenetrable chaparral which in the distance looks like scotch heather it is about six to eight feet high has slender elastic branches red shreddy bark needle-shaped leaves and small white flowers in pinnacles about a foot long making glorious sheets of fragrant bloom in the spring to running fires it offers no resistance vanishing with the few other flowery shrubs and vines and lilaceous plants that grow with it about as fast as dry grass leaving nothing but ashes but with wonderful vigor it rises again and again in fresh beauty from the root and calls back to its hospitable mansions the multitude of wild animals that had to flee for their lives as soon as you enter the pine woods you meet the charming little chamabatia foliolosa one of the handsomest of the park shrubs next in fineness and beauty to the heathworts of the alpine regions like a dinostoma it belongs to the rose family is from twelve to eighteen inches high has brown bark slender branches white flowers like those of the strawberry anthracepinate glandular yellow-green leaves finely cut and fern-like as if unusual pains had been taken in fashioning them where there is plenty of sunshine at an elevation of three thousand to six thousand feet it makes a close continuous growth 
leaf touching leaf over hundreds of acres spreading a handsome mantle beneath the yellow and sugar pines here and there a lily rises above it an arching bunch of tall bromus and at wide intervals a rosebush or a clump of ceanothus or manzanita but there are no rough weeds mixed with it no roughness of any sort perhaps the most widely distributed of all the park shrubs and of the sierra in general certainly the most strikingly characteristic are the many species of manzanita arctostaphylos though one species the uva ursa or bearberry the kinnikinnick of the western indians extends around the world the greater part of them are california they are mostly from four to ten feet high round-headed with innumerable branches brown or red bark pale green leaves set on edge and a rich profusion of small pink narrow-throated urn-shaped flowers like those of arbutus the branches are knotty zigzaggy and about as rigid as bones and the bark so thin and smooth both trunk and branches seem to be naked looking as if they had been peeled polished and painted red the wood is also red hard and heavy these grand bushes seldom fail to engage the attention of the traveller and hold it especially if he has to pass through closely planted fields of them such as grow on moraine slopes at an elevation of about seven thousand feet and in canyons choked with earthquake boulders for they make the most uncompromisingly stubborn of all chaparral even bears take pains to go around the stoutest patches if possible and when compelled to force a passage leave tufts of hair and broken branches to mark their way while less skilful mountaineers under like circumstances sometimes lose most of their clothing and all their temper the manzanitas like sunny ground on warm ridges and sandy flats at the foot of sun-beaten canyon cliffs some of the tallest specimens have well-defined trunks six inches of a foot or more thick and stand apart in orchard-like growths which in bloom time are among the finest garden sites in the park the largest i ever saw had a round slightly fluted trunk nearly four feet in diameter which at a height of only eighteen inches from the ground dissolved into a wilderness of branches rising and spreading to a height and width of about twelve feet in spring every bush all over the mountains is covered with rosy flowers in autumn with fruit the red pleasantly acid berries about the size of peas are like little apples and the hungry mountaineer is glad to eat them though half their bulk is made up of hard seeds indians bears coyotes foxes birds and other mountain people live on them for months associated with manzanita there are six or seven species of ceanothus flowery fragrant and altogether delightful shrubs growing in glorious abundance in the forest on sunny or half-shaded ground up to an elevation of about nine thousand feet above the sea in the sugar pine woods the most beautiful species is c indigermis often called california lilac or deer brush it is five or six feet high smooth 
slender, willowy, with bright foliage and abundance of blue flowers in close, showy panicles. Two species, Prostatus and Procumbens, spread handsome blue-flowered mats and rugs on warm ridges beneath the pines and offer delightful beds to the tired mountaineers. The commonest species, C. cordulatus, is mostly restricted to the silver fir belt. It is white-flowered and thorny and makes extensive thickets of tangled chaparral far too dense to wade through and too deep and loose to walk on, though it is pressed flat every winter by ten or fifteen feet of snow. Above these thorny beds, sometimes mixed with them, a very wild red-fruited cherry grows in magnificent tangles, fragrant and white as snow when in bloom. The fruit is small and rather bitter, not so good as the black puckery choke cherry that grows in the canyons, but thrushes, robins, chipmunks like it. Below the cherry tangles, chinkapin and goldcup oak spread generous mantles of chaparral, and with hazel and ribes thickets in adjacent glens, help to clothe and adorn the rocky wilderness and produce food for the many mouths nature has to fill. Azalea occidentalis is the glory of cool streams and meadows. It is from two to five feet high, has bright green leaves, and a rich profusion of large, fragrant white and yellow flowers, which are in prime beauty in June, July, and August, according to the elevation, from 3,000 to 6,000 feet. Only the purple-flowered rhododendron of the redwood forests rivals or surpasses it in superb abounding bloom. Back a little way from the azalea-bordered streams, a small wild rose makes thickets, often several acres in extent, deliciously fragrant on dewy mornings and after showers, the fragrance mingled with the music of birds nesting in them. And not far from these rose gardens, Rubus nutcanus covers the ground with broad velvety leaves and pure white flowers as large as those of its neighbor the rose, and finer in texture, followed at the end of summer by soft red berries, good for bird and beast and man also. This is the commonest and the most beautiful of the whole blessed flowery fruity genus. The glory of the alpine region in bloom time are the heathworts, cassiope, brianthus, calmia, and vicinium, enriched here and there by the alpine honeysuckle, lonicera conjugialis, and by the purple-flowered primula suffruticosa, the only primrose discovered in California and the only shrubby species in the genus. The lowly, hardy, adventurous cassiope has exceedingly slender creeping branches, scale-like leaves, and pale pink or white waxen bell flowers. Few plants, large or small, so well endure hard weather and rough ground over so great a range. In July, it spreads a wavering, interrupted belt of the loveliest bloom around glacier lakes and meadows and across wild moory expanses between roaring streams all along the sierra and northward beneath cold skies by way of the mountain chains of oregon washington british columbia and alaska to the arctic regions 
gradually descending until at the north end of the continent it reaches the level of the sea blooming as profusely and at about the same time on mossy frozen tundras as on the high sierra moraines brianthus the companion of cassiop accompanies it as far north as southwestern alaska where together they weave thick plushy beds on rounded mountain tops above the glaciers it grows mostly at slightly lower elevations the upper margin of what may be called the brianthus belt in the sierra uniting with and overlapping the lower margin of the cassiop the wide bell-shaped flowers are bright purple about three-fourths of an inch in diameter hundreds to the square yard the young branches mostly erect being covered with them no highlander in heather enjoys more luxurious rest than the sierra mountaineer in a bed of blooming bryanthus and imagine the show on calm dewy mornings when there is a radiant globe in the throat of every flower and smaller gems on the needle-shaped leaves the sunbeams pouring through them in the same wild cold region the tiny vaccinium myrtillus mixed with calmia and dwarf willows spreads thinner carpets the down-pressed matted leaves profusely sprinkled with pink bells and on higher sandy slopes you will find several alpine species of aerial gornum with gorgeous bossy masses of yellow bloom and the lovely arctic daisy with many blessed companions charming plants gentle mountaineers nature's darlings which seem always the finer the higher and stormier their homes many interesting ferns are distributed over the park from the foothills to a little above the timber line the greater number are rock ferns pellet chilanthus polypodium adiantum woodsia cryptogram etc with small tufted fronds lining glens and gorges and fringing the cliffs and moraines the most important of the larger species are woodwardia aspidium asplenium and the common terrace woodwardia radicans is a superb fern five to eight feet high growing in vase-like clumps where the ground is level and on slopes in a regular thatch frond over frond like shingles on a roof its range in the park is from the western boundary up to about five thousand feet mostly on benches of the north walls of canyons watered by small outspread streams it is far more abundant in the coast mountains beneath the noble redwoods where it attains a height of ten to twelve feet the aspidiums are mostly restricted to the moist parts of the lower forests asplenium felix fomina to marshy streams the hardy broad-shouldered terrace aquilina the commonest of ferns grows tall and graceful on sunny flats and hillsides at elevations between three thousand and six thousand feet those who know it only in the eastern states can form no fair conception of its stately beauty in the sunshine of the sierra on the level sandy floors of yosemite valleys it often attains a height of six to eight feet in fields thirty or forty acres in extent 
the magnificent fronds outspread in a nearly horizontal position, forming a ceiling beneath which one may walk erect in delightful mellow shade. No other fern does so much for the color glory of autumn, with its browns and reds and yellows changing and interblending. Even after lying dead all winter beneath the snow, it spreads a lively brown mantle over the desolate ground, until the young fronds, with a noble display of faith and hope, come rolling up into the light through the midst of the beautiful ruins. A few weeks suffice for their development, then, gracefully poised each in its place, they managed themselves in every exigency of weather as if they had passed through a long course of training. I have seen solemn old sugar pines thrown into momentary confusion by the sudden onset of a storm, tossing their arms excitedly as if scared awake and wondering what had happened, but I never noticed surprise or embarrassment in the behavior of this noble terrace. Of five species of Pellea in the park, the handsome Andromeda folia, growing in brushy foothills with Adiantum emarginatum, is the largest. P. Brueri, the hardiest, and at the same time the most fragile of the genus, grows in dense tufts among rocks on storm-beaten mountain sides along the upper margin of the fern line. It is a charming little fern, four or five inches high, has shining bronze-colored stalks, which are about as brittle as glass, and pale green pinnet fronds. Its companions on the lower part of its range are Cryptogramma acrostochoides and Phegopteris alpestris. The latter, soft and tender, not at all like a rock fern, though it grows on rocks where the snow lies longest. P. brigisi with blue-green, narrow, simply pinnate fronds, is about the same size as Brewery, and ranks next to it as a mountaineer, growing in fissures and round boulders on glacier pavements. About a thousand feet lower we find the smaller and more abundant Pedensa, on ledges and boulder-strewn fissured pavements, watered until late in summer by oozing currents from snowbanks or thin outspread streams from moraines, growing in close sods, its little bright green triangular tripinnate fronds about an inch in length, as innumerable as leaves of grass. P. ornithopus has twice or thrice pinnate fronds, is dull in color, and dwells on hot rocky hillsides among chaparral. Three species of Chelanthus, Californica, Gracilima, and Myriophylla, with beautiful two to four pinnate fronds, an inch to five inches long, adorn the stupendous walls of canyons, however dry and sheer. The exceedingly delicate and interesting Californica is rare, the others abundant at from 3,000 to 7,000 feet elevation, and are often accompanied by the little gold fern, Gymnogramma triangularis, and rarely by the curious little Botrychium simplex, the smallest of which are less than an inch high. The finest of all the rock ferns is Adiantum pedatum, lover of waterfalls and the lightest waftings of irised spray. 
No other Sierra fern is so constant a companion of white spray-covered streams or tells so well their wild thundering music. The homes it loves best are cave-like hollows beside the main falls where it can float its plumes on their dewy breath, safely sheltered from the heavy spray-laden blasts. Many of these moss-lined chambers, so cool, so moist, and brightly colored with rainbow light, contain thousands of these happy ferns, clinging to the emerald walls by the slightest holds, reaching out the most wonderfully delicate fingered fronds on dark, glossy stalks, sensitive, tremulous, all alive, in an attitude of eager attention, throbbing in unison with every motion and tone of the resounding waters, compliant to their faintest impulses, moving each division of the frond separately at times, as if fingering the music, playing on invisible keys. Considering the lilies as you go up the mountains, the first you come to is L. Pardolinum, with large orange-yellow purple-spotted flowers big enough for babies' bonnets. It is seldom found higher than 3,500 feet above the sea, grows in magnificent groups of 50 to 100 or more in romantic waterfall dells, in the pine woods shaded by overarching maple and willow, alder and dogwood, with bushes in front of the embowering trees for a border, and ferns and sedges in front of the bushes, while the bed of black humus in which these bulbs are set is carpeted with mosses and liverworts. These richly furnished lily gardens are the pride of the falls on the lower tributaries of the Tuolumne and Merced rivers, falls not like those of Yosemite valleys, coming from the sky with rock-shaking thunder tones, but small, with low, kind voices, cheerily singing in calm, leafy bowers, self-contained, keeping their snowy skirts well about them, yet furnishing plenty of spray for the lilies. The Washington Lily, L. Washingtonianum, is white, deliciously fragrant, moderate in size, with three to ten flowered racemes. The largest I ever measured was eight feet high, the raceme two feet long, with fifty-two flowers, fifteen of them open. The others had faded or were still in the bud. This famous lily is distributed over the sunny portions of the sugar pine woods, never in large garden companies like Pardolinum, but widely scattered, standing up to the waist in dense cianthus and manzanita chaparral, waving its lovely flowers above the blooming wilderness of brush and giving their fragrance to the breeze. These stony, thorny jungles are about the last places in the mountains in which one would look for lilies. But though they toil not nor spin, like other people under adverse circumstances, they have to do the best they can. Because their large bulbs are good to eat, they are dug up by Indians and bears. Therefore, like hunted animals, they seek refuge in the chaparral, where among the boulders and tough tangled roots they are comparatively safe. This is the favorite Sierra lily, and it is now growing in all the best parks and gardens of the world. End of section 8